Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. Good morning. I'll be reading from Luke verses 221 through 38. After eight days has passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to who all were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of God for the people of God. I hope you all have had a great week since we last gathered for worship on Christmas Eve. After we closed our evening service here by singing Silent Night and Joy to the World, by candlelight as we always do, my family enjoyed our usual Christmas Eve and Christmas traditions at home. We had a nice dinner, preceded by the same grace we always say when we eat together, one that I learned by always saying it with my grandparents as I grew up. While they were putting food out for the reindeer, our kids heard Santa's sleigh coming through that neighborhood, and then they came inside to set up milk and cookies for him. On Christmas morning, they opened the gifts that had been left in their stockings and under the tree and read their letters from Santa. All of these are things I very clearly remember doing with my parents and my brother when I was a kid. And while my brother and I never had elves on a shelf when we were kids, Juliet, River, and Thayer also got their yearly letter from Chewy, Razzle, and Buddy explaining that they had to go back to the North Pole with Santa, but they'd be back for more fun next December. These traditions have evolved over the years, but they have all always served to inspire joyful inspiration and help us remember that we are part of stories that are bigger than our individual selves. These rituals root us to the Jesus story, of course, but also to our family narrative and the cultural phenomenon that is Santa Claus. And it's been a great to have this past week off. As usual, I've enjoyed watching several college football bowl games. Unfortunately, our local teams haven't fared too well. 
Well, except for Duke, but I mean, who really cares about Duke football? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> if you didn't already know this about me, I'm a big sports fan, and I love watching even the pregame shows to learn about all, this, all the stories and traditions that go along with different teams. I never went to a school that had a really huge football tradition, but I remember attending a Virginia Tech game with a friend back in 2016 and seeing all the different game day rituals the players, the band, and the fans performed. At every home game, the Hokies players are about, as, as the Hokies players are about to enter the stadium, each player comes through the tunnel and touches the Hokie stone, which is a piece of limestone with the words, for those who have passed, for those to come, reach for excellence, inscribed on it. As they get ready to run onto the field, Metallica's Enter Sandman plays over the loudspeakers and the entire stadium full of people starts to jump up and down. You can feel the energy running through the entire place, and it was honestly one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced. In 2021, for their first game back with a full stadium of fans after COVID, the crowd actually registered a minor earthquake on Virginia Tech's seismograph. These and many other game day rituals serve to connect the team and their fans to each other and remind them of their shared identity in the bigger story of the program's history, while also energizing them for the conflict that lies ahead in the game. There are a lot of slightly different ways to define what exactly a ritual is, but it can be understood as an action or series of actions performed according to a prescribed order, and which is often embedded in a larger symbolic system. Today's text deals with three important rituals of faith that help the characters make meaning of their stories and understand how they're interweaved with the larger transcendent story of God. First, in a ritual that marks Jewish males as part of the covenantal community, the child is circumcised and he is named Jesus, which means the Lord saves in Hebrew. As faithful parents, Mary and Joseph have fulfilled the angel Gabriel's instructions. And in this ritual that connects the family to their ancestors of the past, Jesus's identity is made known. Then, 40 days after his birth, Jesus' parents take him to the temple in Jerusalem, where two more important rituals take place. Jesus' dedication in response to God's word from Exodus, and Mary's purification in response to instructions given in Leviticus. According to the law, those who could not afford to bring a lamb for a sacrifice could bring two turtle doves or pigeons, which Mary and Joseph do. While they did not have the means to offer a lamb, they are faithful Jews who have the discipline and dedication to be sure to do everything the law requires. Sister Margaret Mary Kelleher, who taught liturgy at the Catholic University of America, wrote that rituals help us negotiate and define our personal and communal identities. It's clear that Mary and Joseph are rooted in their faith, and the, these three rituals we hear about in today's reading help them more deeply connect with their Jewish faith while also helping to define Jesus' identity. When Simeon, guided by the Holy Spirit, lifts Jesus up, he makes an amazing declaration about the baby, that he will be the salvation of the entire world. But he also immediately lets Mary know that this salvation will not come easy. Jesus will be the source of rising and falling for people in Israel. After all that Mary and Joseph have been through over the past year or so, and all that they have been told about what, what lies in store for them and their child, I imagine they might be weary and also nervous and anxious about what lies ahead. Kelleher also suggests that ritual has therapeutic value because it attributes symbolic meaning to experience, and it helps create a sense of continuity in our lives by linking the past to the present and the present to the future. In the midst of life's discontinuities, rituals become a dependable source of security and comfort. Rituals help provide a sense of order amidst the chaos of life, 
And while Mary and Joseph's lives have been turned upside down lately, they meet their weariness by rejoicing in ritual. Their faithful observance of these rituals roots them more deeply in their faith while also giving them a sense of strength, courage, and confidence for the future. Now, I am not a gardener, but I do know that plants need roots for nourishment and strength so they can continue to grow, stay upright, and not be blown over by the wind. As a plant grows, the root system will keep growing for as long as the plant as a whole, including the foliage, continues to grow. Roots keep growing deeper and wider as the visible part of the plant continues to reach, reach towards the light. If we think of the seeds of our lives as being planted by God, we can understand rituals to be a source of nourishment, allowing our roots to continually run deeper and the outward of expression of our faith to be ever more authentic and genuine. In their book, Mighty Stories, Dangerous Rituals, theology professors Herbert Anderson and Edward Foley discuss the importance of community ritual, suggesting that it is indispensable for entering the story, exercising co-authorship, and realizing a narrative's full potential. And they note that local congregations construct their own stories in order to make sense of the gospel in their particular context. I mentioned the singing of Silent Night and Joy to the World by Candlelight on Christmas Eve earlier. But what are some other important rituals for us here at Greystone that allow us to enter into and help co-author this community's narrative? Of course, there's communion, baptisms, weddings, funerals, ordinations, baby dedications, reciting the mission statement when new members join, celebrating Heritage Sunday, observing other special dates and services according to the church calendar. And there's also our ritual performance of liturgy, worship itself and all that goes with it, the order of service, the use of liturgical colors, prayers and doxologies, the singing of hymns and spiritual songs. All of these acts are designed for engagement with the holy. And when done with awareness and intentionality, they can nourish us as individuals, help us grow more deeply into this particular community of faith, and also more deeply into the universal body of Christ. When we intentionally take time and action to remember who we are and whose we are, we remember ourselves within the body of Christ. We reorient ourselves to God and root ourselves more deeply into the inner ground of our being so we can continue to grow outwardly toward the light. Personal rituals can also be extremely meaningful and effective in helping us order and tell the stories of our own lives. Many athletes use personal rituals to attain a sense of grounding and confidence. Michael Jordan wore his North Carolina practice shorts underneath his Chicago Bull shorts in every game. Hall of Fame third baseman Wade Boggs, who I used to enjoy watching play for the Red Sox when I was a kid, ate chicken before every game, took exactly 117 ground balls in practice, took batting practice at 517, and ran sprints at 717. And these may sound like just silly superstitions, but a study conducted in 2010 showed that engaging in rituals like these actually enhanced people's confidence in their abilities, motivated greater effort, and improved performance. When done with intention, Rituals that are meaningful for our own personal stories can help improve our self-efficacy so we can be at our best. Ritual involves routine, and for many of us, routine can be a source of comfort. But routine can also quickly become wearisome. Today is New Year's Eve, and as we look forward to each new calendar year, many of us make resolutions, often centering on changing our habits and creating new routines so we can grow in some way and become more like the versions of ourselves that we want to be. But if we simply seek to create new habits and routines, we're setting ourselves up to miss the mark. Ryder Carroll, founder of the bullet journal method for intentional living, 
says that habits are compelling not only because they promise to make us better, but because they promise to automate the ordinary. If that's even possible, it surfaces another concern. These ordinary behaviors, the way we eat, the way we move, the way we sleep, compose much of the substance of our lives. By striving to make them ever more automated, the more mundane and uninteresting they become. In other words, true habit acquisition threatens to make our lives feel ever less meaningful. Nietzsche once said, one who has a why to live can bear almost any how. In order to truly change our behavior, we have to believe in the reason why we're changing. We need a compelling purpose that will motivate us to do what is necessary, which often boils down to simply doing ordinary things over and over again. And this is the fundamental difference between habits and rituals. Whereas routine is a process-driven approach to behavior change, ritual is a purpose-driven approach. Routines focus on the what, rituals focus on the why, and they allow us to embody stories that can ingrain even the most ordinary task or object with meaning. Intentionality matters, and ritual provides a way to put awareness into action. It allows us to take an active role in shaping a narrative we believe in. The more we believe in the things we are doing, the more likely we are to keep doing the things we believe in, even when that involves doing ordinary things. This purpose-driven approach to behavior change has the power to keep reconnecting us with the ideas that make our lives feel meaningful. If we can connect the why in our New Year's resolutions to our faith, I think we might stand more of a chance of keeping them. I know that I want to grow fully into the person God is calling me to be and to keep my life oriented in that direction. If I'm being perfect, perfectly honest, though, I tend to get out of that headspace quite a bit of the time. So personally, in the new year, I'm resolving not just to keep resolutions, but to create rituals for myself that will help me continually remember to be aware of God's presence and act with the intention of living into all that God is calling me to be. If you're the resolution-making type, I challenge you to maybe consider that approach as well. As we continue to author our personal and collective stories in a culture that is diverse and dynamic, it's important to remember that rituals necessarily evolve along with our faith. Ronald Grimes, who has written many books on ritual, suggests that imagining ritually requires a constantly renewed structure, as rituals survive precisely by being reinvented and reimagined. There is no other option. In a recent Christian Century article, Chicago pastor Julian Deshazier similarly states in a broader sense that as a resurrection people, one pointing toward a Jesus we cannot see and hoping to build a world that is not and perhaps has never been, our ability to imagine and reimagine is a critical part of our faith. Maybe the answer isn't a new thing, but a new way, one that invites us to mine deep into our tradition and beyond to find the faithful way forward. What new and faithful ways forward might we seek for ourselves and our church? As the identity of our Greystone community continues to evolve, and as we consider the ways, as we consider the ways in which we understand ourselves to be a welcoming community for all, which of our rituals might need to be reimagined or reinvented? What new community rituals might we consider for important life events that need one? How can we use and reimagine ritual to root ourselves more deeply in our faith so we can continue to grow into the vision of who God is calling us to be as a church? Let us have the faith to be intentional about and rejoice in our ritual practices so we might continually remember who we are and whose we are and have the courage to live in, into who we are called to be. Amen.